Good morning. My name is Tommy Allen, and welcome to the teaching ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington. This morning, we are going to continue in our series on the Jesus Storybook Bible. I believe this morning is number 17, so we've covered quite a bit of ground. So before we do that, there's a few things I wanted to tell you. Even as you are watching um, this video right now, if you're watching the premiere, we are actually meeting live and in person. And I will be preaching the same sermon live and in person. Um, it'll be, for me, frankly, like preaching two services, both of them with very little interaction, if you know what I mean. But all of that to say, we are working on a live stream option. Some people say, oh, why don't you just um, record what you're, you're doing in church or why don't you live stream it? That, it? It's actually pretty complicated to do well. And so we're working on doing that well. And we just thought that pre-recording and doing a video where you actually get to, to see me and interact with me would be better than you watching from 50 feet away as they record me on the Skycam in our church sanctuary. So with all of that said, Typically, I begin these virtual services with the confession of sin. And the reason we do that is because if you think of the gospel, if the gospel was candy, um, it would have a center that the center would be the sweetest, most delightful thing you ever tasted. But the coating on the outside would be bitter. In other words, you got to get through the bitter to get to the sweet. And the bitterness of the gospel is admitting that we are broken and sinful. So if you want to follow along, you can actually follow along. Our whole liturgy is actually online now that we're using in live church. I'm using the same confession of sin that we'll be using live. And so if you want to follow along, you could do that. Find that in the description section. And so let us confess together. Almighty and most merciful God, we acknowledge and confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. We ask you, O oh God, to be forgiving to what we have been, to help us to amend what we are, and of your mercy to direct what we shall be, so that the love of Jesus may ever be first in our hearts, that we may walk in your commandments and follow into our life's end in the footsteps of our Lord. Amen and amen. Typically at this point, I would give you a moment to confess your sins silently. Uh, since this is virtual, I will simply tell you that if you have confessed your sins unto Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive you. And so I say to you, know that you are forgiven and be at peace. Amen and amen. So this morning, um, what I'm going to do, let, why don't I read to you the text from this morning? We're, we're jumping forward um, about 150 years. So Samuel preached on David and Bathsheba last weekend, and this weekend I'm preaching on a man named uh, Naaman. And so let me read to you the story of Naaman, and then we will jump in. So hear the word of God. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because of by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. 
And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that this would surely come out. He would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God. And he would wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Ebana and Farfar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that like Naaman, we would be transformed as a result of your word. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen. So let me start this way. I'll start with a question. And the question is this, why does nearly every religion in the world except Christianity rely on some version of works in order to be saved? Or some version of bringing something to the God or giving something to the God? Why do they all do that? And the answer, I think, whether they know it or not, has been found. I think almost definitively found by psychologists. Psychologists have figured out why people feel like they have to work for their salvation. At least that's my opinion. You know, um, just this week, I finished a book entitled Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by a doctor named uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini. And basically, it's about how we are persuaded or how compliance professionals persuade us to do things that we don't necessarily want to do. In other words, it's, it has to do with sales a lot. Um, and he has several principles in the book, um, you know, commitment and, and things like that. But the, the one I think that's appropriate here is the principle of reciprocity. What does the principle of reciprocity say? The principle of reciprocity basically says this, is that we are wired to feel obligated when someone does something for us, or when someone does something nice to us, or when someone gives us a gift. We feel obligated to return that gift one way or another, do you not? And salespeople do this all the time. Missions agencies do this all the time because it works. What do I mean by that? Well, just this week, I checked my mail and I got this big package from a very uh, well-known mission agency. And I opened the package and in the package was a, a calendar and pens and address tabs with my name printed on them. There were all these gifts in there. And then at the very bottom of the envelope was a plea, would you please pledge $525 a month? Now, why did they send me all those gifts? Well, they figured out that if people receive gifts, they feel in some ways obligated 
to return. You know, I should get something for this calendar. I mean, they did print address things for me. Now, unfortunately for that mission agency, I just happened to finish reading this book, so they got nothing this time. But the point is, is that we feel obligated when people do things for us. Salespeople do that. Religions do that. Harry Krishnas, you've gone through the airport. The main strategy of fundraising for Harry Krishnas is to hand you a flower when you go in the airport or to hand you some literature because people feel like I just received this. Now I need to give something in return. I'm obligated. And the, the flip side of that is, is we learn to use that. We learn to use the principle of reciprocity in our own favor. And typically, I think we use that with God. If I want God to, to comply with my desires, if I want him to return favor to me, I should do something for him. And if I do something for him, then he is, he's, he's going to feel obligated to do something for me. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, really, um, the gospel doesn't work that way right? That, that, that if God is the only one who really gives all the stuff, then he's the only one who is owed an obligation. So today's story of Naaman that we're going to consider, we're going to see the whole principle of reciprocity completely undone as, as one man who has everything. He has everything except one thing, right? He has the right race. He has the right uh, status. He has the right gender. He has all the power. He has everything, but he has a big problem. And, and, He's going to learn that, that none, none of the things he brings to the table can fix that problem. And the same is true for you and me, right? None of the things we have, none of the things we probably spent our lifetime working on can fix the primary problem that all of us have. We'll see what that is. So today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at, the, as we consider the story of Naaman, I know some people pronounce it Naaman because it's N-A-A-M-A-N. Um, you know, I've always said Naaman and the, the right, the principle of commitment and compliance says, I don't like to change. So I'm just going to keep saying Naaman for the course of this sermon. Um, so we're going to look at Naaman's problem. We're going to look at Naaman's pride. And finally, we're going to look at Naaman's transformation. So before we consider Naaman's um, problem, let's give a little bit of context here, right? The, the last thing we looked at was David and the kingdom of Israel under David what it, and only under David was the kingdom of Israel unified. And by that, I mean all 12 tribes under one king. Then David turned things over to his son Solomon, who on one hand was the wisest man who ever lived, and he was the wealthiest man who ever lived. On the other hand, he was a sinner, and he was also ultimately corrupted by his numerous wives and concubines, um, leading him astray. And, and the kingdom split ultimately under him so into a northern kingdom, which was eventually called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And so about 150 years later, um, from, from when David and Solomon reigned, um, that's where the story takes place now. And, and basically about 150 years after that is when you had a king named Ahab. And Ahab was among the most wicked kings in Israel. You see the context of the story, I think it's very interesting. It's, it's at the very, it, Israel is at the bottom, right? You, you look around at least like the American political scene, you're like, how bad can things get? Well, in Israel, they were at the same place. The, the person who was supposed to re be representing them, to be protecting them, to do all these things was actually wicked. He, was, he ultimately ended up being a Baal worshiper. And remember his wife Jezebel, she was also the wicked. And so Ahab has, has been the king. They had been fighting a war with Syria. Ahab is killed. And eventually um, one of his sons, Jehoram, becomes the king. 
in that time also because Ahab was so wicked, then Elijah came along. Remember, Elijah is one of the great prophets, maybe the greatest prophet. And so Elijah comes and, you know, he's bearing witness against Jezebel and Ahab. And eventually Elijah turns things over to Elisha. And Elisha is, his ministry starts in 2 Kings chapter 1. That's where we see all these things. He's given Elijah's mantle. Elijah is taken off into heaven. There's this great scene. Uh, I mean, it's great in the sense that it's interesting um, where some boys, you know, call out to Elisha in uh, 2 Kings 2, you know, go up ye bald head, go up ye bald head. And it says he called two she bears out of the woods and they mauled the youth. And it's like, okay, don't mess with the man of God, right? That's a sermon for another time. But needless to say, um, Elisha is, is pretty um, extra, to put it nicely. And so in this context, um, we have this story of a slave girl who's been captured and a Gentile or a pagan army commander that God uses a story of this pagan encountering uh, the living God in the middle of all of Israel forgetting about the living God. That even though the whole country, if you will, has gone to hell in a handbasket, God is still at work in the lives of those that he promised he would be in working on, right? Remember Abraham, he said, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So even though Israel is in dramatic and drastic decline, God is still at work in the life of this pagan. And so let's consider what his problem is. So if you look at verse one of second Kings chapter five, it says Naaman, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but, he had leprosy. Now think about this. He has everything. He is a, he, he's a great man. He's a commander of the army of Syria. You don't get much higher than that. That would be like being the, 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 the head of the joint chiefs of staff in the United States, right? And so they, and, and he's in favor with the king. No doubt he is wealthy. And even it says the Lord have blessed him with victory, right? So, so he had defeated Israel and it was God who gave Naaman this victory over Israel. And then there's this word, but, and the word, but you hear me say all the time is the most important word in the Bible because it means get rid of everything that came before. So even though he was the, the right army, the right gender, the right uh, social status, he had everything going for him, but he had leprosy. So leprosy would not only make him unclean, but it would make him unattractive. And ultimately, depending on what kind of leprosy it was, leprosy was used for any number of diseases um, that might have killed him. So, you know, he had all everything, but he didn't have his health. Let's put it that way. And he says, but he was a leper. And then I love verses two and three, because in verse two and three, if you've been following along with this um, series on the Jesus Storybook Bible, if you learn nothing else, is that God seems constantly to be work, at work in these little acts of providence. And so Naaman, it says, verse two, it says, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Now, that's a horrible thing. Right? We don't know if her parents are alive. We don't know if her parents are dead. All we know is that she is a little girl who, in the midst of a war, was kidnapped from her family and her friends and everything that she knew and taken into the house of this foreign general. That's horrible. Can anything good come out of that? 
Yes, because this little girl is on mission, right? A lot of us think, oh, I'm insignificant. What could God ever do with me? This little girl does nothing but speak up one time and it changes the course of history. Notice what she says in verse three. It says, she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, this is actually pretty big because if I was that little girl, I might be tempted to be bitter. I might be tempted to say, uh-huh, I know there's a way that he could be cured. I bet, I bet you that Elisha could cure him, but you know what? I'm not gonna tell anybody. I'm just gonna let him rot away because he deserves everything he gets. Kidnapping me, taking me into his service, I'll never see my family again. She could have just been bitter, 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 and yet she wasn't, apparently. Apparently, the Jesus Storybook Bible version says she was very forgiving. And so she tells her mistress, there's a prophet in Samaria. And it, we see how desperate Naaman is because he takes the word of this little girl that there is this religious guy in their enemy's country that might be able to heal him. And so he goes straight to the king. Notice what it says. It says, verse four. So Naaman went in and told his lord, the king, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And when he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you, name him my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, the, the fact that the king immediately sends Naaman tells you how important Naaman was to the king. And it tells you how confident the king of Syria is that if there is another fight between him and Israel, he is going, he will win. And, and in other words, that would be like the United States, um, to, you know, someone in the United States getting sick and the, the, the president sending the person to Iran and saying, hey, you guys need to heal this guy of a disease that has no cure. And if you don't, We'll see what happens. At least that's the way the king of Israel took it. Because it would have been crazy. It would have been the, the, the height of hubris for the king of Syria, their enemy, to send his head general into the heart of Israel and say to the king of Israel, I expect you to cure my general. Notice how the king of Israel responds to that. Verse seven, it says, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, right? That's, a, that's morning, and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure this man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Now, why does the king of Israel think that the king of, of Syria is seeking a quarrel with him? One, he rips his clothes. One, that apparently he doesn't believe he can win. And the answer is because it, it's found actually in what he says. He says, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure this man of his leprosy? In other words, the king knows that to cure this man of leprosy would take almost no less of a miracle than to resurrect him from the dead. Only God can kill and only God can make alive. I can't do that. Now, interestingly enough, the king of Syria has also um, made a mistake, or at least he has made a, a wrong assumption in thinking that the king can do anything, or that the king has some say over God's prophet. What we see here is not only does the king not have any say over God's prophet, we don't even know if the king believes in God. 
or we don't know at least if the king has a faith in God, like a living faith, because when he he hears this, he immediately freaks out. He rip tears his robe and he assumes that everyone's going to die. Right. That's a way a lot of Christians, frankly, respond to things. And yet, if there is a God in Israel, there's a different answer. There's a different way to approach this. And that is where Elisha comes in. It says in verse 8, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? <laughs> Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Elisha is going to deal with the situation. He says, why did you tear your clothes, right? If you, if you trusted that God speaks through me, that he worked through me, that's not a problem. Send him to me. And that's exactly what happens. So in verse 9, we consider Naaman's pride. Now, why am I saying that? It's because of this. It's because Naaman's problem here, his leprosy, is what physicians might call a presenting problem. But it's not the real problem. Right? His external leprosy is just a presenting problem that God is going to use as an opportunity to work on his actual problem, which is his prideful, leprous heart. You see, his real problem is on the inside, and that's what the outside problem is going to bring him to deal with. So Naaman's pride. Notice verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now imagine how intimidating this is. Naaman is the commander of a foreign army, and he shows up to Elisha's front door with an army, right? When, when it says of generals and things in the Bible that they have many horses and that they had chariots, that means there was an army with them. And so he has an army. Let's assume it's a small army. He, he, Naaman and a small army show up at Elisha's front door. And if anyone showed up at your front door in the ancient Near East, you were expected to show them hospitality. Now, if someone important showed up at your front door, you were expected to go all the way, and Elisha doesn't even answer the door. What an assault to Naaman's pride. Elisha sends a messenger to talk to the most important person in Israel at the moment. And what does he say? It says, Elisha sent a messenger to him, verse 10, saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Now, Naaman's response to, to that imperative, go wash in the Jordan and your flesh shall be clean, actually reveals um, three other ways that his pride has been assaulted. In other words, Elisha has, has insulted him by not coming to talk to him. He's insulted him and insulted his pride by, not, by sending a messenger, but his message is really what assaults the pride of Naaman. Now, these three things, I've learned these things, three things from Tim Keller. And so the first thing you'd learn is the simplicity of the cure is offensive to Naaman. Just the simplicity of the cure. Notice what he says in verse 11. After Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Simple as that. Verse 11, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely stretch, he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. He, in other words, Naaman is saying, I expected, I drove 
all this way, I expected to be healed with a little panache, with a little, with a little flair, with a little pizzazz. I expected the prophet to come out and maybe do a dance and to, to do some incantations and to make a big deal over the fact that Naaman is here. Naaman needs to be healed. And Lord, this is the most important person in all of Israel. Would you please heal him? And yet he says, no, just go take a bath. That's what you need to do and you will be clean. And Naaman is offended by the simplicity that the, the simplicity of, of the instructions here um, go against everything he expected. Now, if you think about it, the gospel of Jesus also does the same thing, right? That you're, we're saved not by, by works of our, of our hands, by works of our flesh, by merit, but we are saved by grace freely. And that's offensive to somebody, which that leads to the, to the next thing is that he, Naaman is, his pride is assaulted because not only because of the simplicity of the cure, but because of the freeness of the cure. That it's, it's just free. He expected to want to do something. Remember the, the, the principle of reciprocity. He expected to, to do something that, that in, in other words, what probably he expected was Elijah to come out and him to say something like, what, what do you demand of me? And he'd say, I wish to be cured of my leprosy. And then Elisha would say, go fetch me the broom of the wicked witch of the West. And when you get back with that broom, then I will heal you. Or go slay that dragon over there. When you slay that dragon, once I've seen that you're worthy, come and I will heal you. And he doesn't say any of that. He just says, go take a bath, go wash. And we know that his servants, we get that from his servants a little bit because his servants um, basically say in verse 13, they came near, you almost get the sense that they whisper and they say, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He's act has he actually said to you, wash and be clean. In other words, you get the sense here that they're going, you know, if he told you to do anything else, would you not have done it? If he told you to go conquer an army, would you not have done it? Would not you have done anything to be cured of your leprosy? Now, just as a side note, it's interesting in this story that the heroes in the story are, are really the lowliest people. This little slave girl from Israel or his the servants of Naaman, and we don't even get their names. And yet without them, he would never have been healed. They challenged him. Say, wouldn't, wouldn't you have done anything? But he's struggling with the freeness of the cure. And the last thing we see is that he really struggles with the exclusivity of the cure. Then notice what he says when he, verse 12, he says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in rage. He's upset at the exclusivity of the cure because Elisha didn't say, go wash in any river. There are many ways to be clean. There are many ways to be saved. He said, no, you need to go wash in the Jordan. Now, what was important probably to them is that in the ancient Near East, every geographic area had its gods, right? You might be, live in an area where Dagon was God or where Baal was God. Well, in Israel, Yahweh was God. And so if you wanted Yahweh to clean you, you need to wash in Yahweh's river, which was the Jordan. In other words, there are not many ways to be cleaned, not by Yahweh. There is one way to be clean, and it is exclusive, the Jordan. And by the time you get to the New Testament, we hear the same principle, and it is equally offensive. In fact, some people, Paul 
and Peter called the stumbling block. And what is that? It's the fact that Jesus says there is one way to be saved. In fact, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but through me. In other words, the claim that Jesus makes of himself, say that, that the way to be saved, he is exclusively, he is the only way to be saved. He's the only mediator between man and God. Now, why is that important? You see, again, this is, Tim says this, that if the cure here um, wasn't exclusive, then it wouldn't also be simple and free. It, it, in other words, if the, if the cure was, was anything, I mean, if it was any river, if it was in Naaman's case, if it had to do with being good or if it had to do with his race or it had to do with his gender or it had to do with his merit or it had to do with how much money he had, at each of those questions, you, you have to ask, well, how much? In, in other words, if, if there are many ways to get to heaven, if being good is a way to get to heaven, well, how good do you got to be? If being the right race is the way to get to heaven, then what, what race do you have to be? What if you're only part of that race and not a whole of that race? If, if being the right gender, if, being, if, if, if having the right merit, if having the right status, how do you ever know if you're good enough? You can't. Now, on the other hand, the, the gospel is simple and free because it is exclusive. You see, in the gospel, the gospel takes all those questions. How good do I have to be? What race do I have to be? What gender do I have to be? All these things. And it takes them and puts them in a ball and nails them to the cross. That it doesn't matter how, what gender you are. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter what status you are. It doesn't matter how simple you've been. It doesn't matter how good you've been. All people must go through Jesus to have a relationship with God. That's the gospel. It's exclusive, but its exclusivity makes it completely simple. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not some, not just men, not just women, not just black people, not just white people or Asians or anyone else. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the cure to our sins is the cross of Jesus and only the cross of Jesus. And it is exclusive, but because of that, it is simple and it is free. Now, what is Naaman going to do with this? Naaman humbles himself. That's the only thing you can do. You see, Naaman can either hold on to his pride and say, I want to work. I want to be the right gender status. I want all these things to work in my favor. And I want to take my chances that those things will cure me of leprosy. Well, he had all those things before and they didn't cure him of leprosy. His only real option is to humble himself and actually do what the man of God has said. Go wash in the Jordan seven times and you will be clean. He does that. And what happens? It says in verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Wow. Imagine him coming up out of the water that seventh time and just looking at his skin and just seeing that his flesh was like the flesh of a little child, that he had been made clean. Now, what's great here is we see immediately that it wasn't just his flesh that had been cleaned. It wasn't just his, his body that had been transformed, but it was his heart as well. How do we know that? Let's look at Naaman's peace or his transformation. There, there's three ways we know that Naaman has been cured on the inside as well as the outside. 
the first thing we notice is that his thinking has changed. Look at verse 15. It says, then he returned to the man of God and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now, this guy was a pagan. He was a polytheist, and he could have been cured, and he could have got on his horse and rode straight back to Syria. Instead, he gets on his horse and rides straight back to Elisha. He wants Elisha to know this transformation that has happened. No longer will I worship Baal or Dagon or Ashtar or any of these other gods, but in fact, I know that there is only one God and there is no God in all the earth, but the God in Israel. So his thinking has changed, that now he is single-minded on this one God and he knows that, that, that his salvation, his cure isn't magic, but in fact, it is of the one God, it is the God of Israel who has made him well on the outside and on the inside. The second way we know that he's cured is he, he becomes generous, right? That it says in verse 15, he says, um, behold, I know that there's no God in all the earth, but in Israel, so now accept a present from your servant in verse 16. But he said, Elisha says, as the Lord lives before for whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Now notice he, did, he comes back, he, he had with him when he arrived about 150 pounds of silver and 75 pounds of gold. And now he has been, he, he, we assume he either offered it or didn't get a chance to offer it. Now he's got all this stuff. He's been cured, he could just go home. And yet now he wants to reciprocate, not pay for it. He says, I brought you a present. I'm just giving you this out of my own grace now. My heart has been changed. Now I'm generous. I want to give back. Can I give you a present? He doesn't say, can I give you a payment? You got to let me pay for this. No. He says, let me give you a gift back. He becomes generous as a result of being transformed. And the last thing, which I think is the greatest, is he becomes a missionary that he cannot help but be a missionary after his heart has been transformed by the God of Israel. Notice what he says in verse 17. It says, then Naaman said, if not, if you won't take this gift, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant. In this manner, in verse 19, he said to him, go in peace. In other words, every time he worships with the king, he's taking this dirt back with him. And every time, well, first of all, you imagine when he sees the king, he's going to tell his story. What happened? The God of Israel saved me. The God of Israel cleaned my skin. The God of Israel changed my heart. There is no God in all the earth but the God of Israel. So you can't imagine he's already talking about that. And then he's going to have to go back and worship with these people. He's going to have to go in the, the temples with them. And he takes his dirt. And the, the, the idea is, at least commentators say, is that he would take a handful of this dirt. And before he got on his knees, before any other anything in that temple, he would put this dirt from Israel down to symbolize that he bows to no God but Yahweh, and he sacrifices to no God but Yahweh. And you have to imagine that would have gotten people's attention. Why are you throwing dirt on the ground in church before you kneel down there? And he would have had an opportunity to tell his story. He could have stayed in Israel, right? Could he not? Do you think the king of Israel would have liked it if the commander of the Syrian army converted to Judaism and just stayed with them? But he doesn't. 
Naaman is healed, he is transformed, and he goes back to his people, intentionally bearing witness to the work of the God of Israel in his life. Now here's the thing, if you are a Christian and you are watching this, you also are a missionary. Whether you know it or not, you're, you're either a good missionary or you're a bad missionary, but you're a missionary nonetheless. And the greatest tool that you have been given is whatever work God has done in your life. In other words, your testimony. Are you willing and able to, to no one's expected, I think, to just walk out on the street all the time and just preach, 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 preach. And no one likes that, really. But how often do you have the opportunity to bear witness to the faithfulness of God in your life? How many times in the workplace, how many times at, 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 at gatherings we go to, at least pre-pandemic and hopefully post-pandemic, are we interacting with people? You know, I, I often am asked how I became a preacher. Because people hear that, oh, you're in the army, that's great, ranger, oh, that's awesome, I had a friend who was a ranger. Everyone, everyone has a friend or, or brother or someone who's a ranger, that's great. And so what do you do now? A preacher. How did you become a preacher? And I always start the story the same way. I never went to church growing up and two girls in high school invited me to camp. And then we're off to the races. And you can ask my wife, she's probably heard me tell that story innumerable times. Every time I get the chance, two girls in high school invited me to camp. Why? They were being missionaries. They didn't, maybe they knew it, maybe they didn't know it. Maybe they just wanted me to go to camp with them. But I went to camp, heard the gospel of Jesus for the first time in my life, and it transformed me. And it has had you know, waves through it for the last 30 years because of that. You also are called to be a missionary. You also are called to tell your story because if you're a Christian, I, you, you need to be reminded that God has been faithful to you and he will be faithful to you. God has healed you on, on the inside, maybe not on the outside like you want, but he has healed you on the inside and one day you and I will be healed on the outside and the inside all at the same time. Let me finish this morning by reading to you how the Jesus Storybook Bible finishes this story. Right? See the picture if you haven't seen the pictures. It says, Naaman finally agreed to wash in the river and instantly his skin became smooth like a baby. Naaman wanted to pay Elisha. God healed you. You can't pay, Elisha said. It's free. And so it was that a very sick man was healed, all because of a little servant girl who forgave him. God knew sin was like leprosy. It stopped his children's hearts from working properly and in the end it would kill them. Years later, God was going to send another servant to forgive as she did, to forgive all God's children and heal the terrible sickness in their heart. Their hearts were broken, but God can mend broken hearts. Amen and amen. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would um, heal us. You would heal those of us who have broken hearts. I pray that you would heal those of us who, who maybe have broken bodies, who have, who have diseases that we struggle with and continue to struggle with or might struggle with. I pray that you would bring healing. I pray that you would bring cleansing of, of the hearts. Maybe if there was some, someone out there who's listening, who has yet to trust Jesus, that this would be the day that they put their trust in Jesus, that this is to be the day that they humble themselves and say, yes, I need to be saved from my sins. And I believe that Jesus is the one who can do it. Father, we thank you for all of your work in our lives and in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. 
So at this point in the service, in the live service, um, we'll have a doxology. We, we don't even take an offering in the live services now because it's sort of um, against the rules. We have a box in the back. Um, if you're interested in giving, and many of you have, um, you can find the information below to, to give electronically. And I actually collect the mail at our church, and I see lots of envelopes coming in that I assume are checks. Thank you so much for your faithfulness in supporting our ministry during this sort of wacky time. And so I'd like to end today um, with a profession of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's question number 56. And the question asks this. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? Answer, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. Amen. In other words, Christ takes our leprosy onto himself and gives us his clean, um, spotless record. So I send you from this place saying that I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature is able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Know that and be at peace. Amen and amen. Have a great week.